I'm John Banther, and this is Classical Breakdown. From WETA Classical in Washington, we are your guide to classical music. In this episode, I am joined by WETA Classical's Evan Keeley, and we're talking about the life and music of Claude Debussy. There is a lot you probably don't know about this composer, one of the most influential of the 20th century, and we give you four points to help you hear his music in a whole new way. Plus, stay with us to the end where we'll enjoy a full performance of one of Debussy's most iconic works. This work has one of the most recognizable openings, doesn't it? It's the flute alone, we have no sense of key or really what's going to happen next, and it's so enchanting, and this is what I think also makes Debussy so different. His music requires your interaction, or he's at least inviting us to reach out and touch it, in my opinion. Other composers often are telling you the idea, they're telling you what's happening, but right from the start, Debussy's just posing a question, where are we? What is this? And he does it with so much ambiguity in the key, harmony, and rhythm. And it's kind of easy to see why so many people called Debussy an impressionist composer, that dreaded I-word, I think, that I'll try to use as little as possible. But that's that's not what he was trying to do, was it? No, definitely not. In fact, uh, he was rather disparaging of the idea of being called an impressionist. And I think that he even didn't care much for the term, even as it was applicable to art. Everybody, of course, knows the Impressionist uh, painters. Uh, We've all been to a museum or we see postcards or a wall calendar with these famous paintings, and they're wonderful. And there are some characteristics of that aesthetic that are similar to what Debussy is doing. There's a kind of uh, a vagueness. uh, There's a kind of dreamy quality. But uh, it's much more useful, in my view, if we're going to talk about Debussy and artistic influences and other movements in literature and painting and so forth, to look at Debussy's relationship with the symbolist movement. Now, everybody knows who the Impressionists were, but symbolism in the early 21st century, maybe not as many people remember uh, the symbolist movement. That that includes uh, poets and writers like uh, Charles Baudelaire is considered kind of the father of symbolism, especially with uh, his poetry collection, The Flowers of Evil, Les Fleurs de Mal. Paul Verlaine is another writer in the symbolist style. Arthur Rimbaud, Stéphane Mellarmé. These are writers that Debussy was well acquainted with. He, he was uh, reading what they were writing. He was very influenced by that whole school of thought. And he even set a lot of these poets' texts to music uh, in his melodies, in his songs. So uh, the symbolist movement is something that's very important. If we're going to understand Debussy, we really want to be thinking about the symbolist movement and how it pertains to Debussy's aesthetic. And there's a number of characteristics of symbolism that we find uh, both in the literature and the art of that movement and especially in Debussy's music. One of those characteristics would be a very strong preference for suggestion, understatement. This is a very deliberate contrast to the aesthetic of romanticism, like you were saying, John, a romantic composer like Schumann or Mendelssohn states a theme. It's very unambiguous. It's very clear. The theme will be developed. Uh, Whereas in Debussy's music, you have this much more understated way of expressing musical ideas. It's even kind of a stereotype. Uh, Debussy's music tends to be very evocative and subtle and dreamlike. Even the harmonic language we find 
in Debussy, his, ex his way of expressing tonality tends in this direction of ambiguity. He's deliberately vague about key structures and relationships and modulations. His harmonic palette embraces dissonances and, and uh, unprepared modulations. They blur the lines of tonality. Uh, he once said, uh, for the strongest reasons, one should employ incomplete chords and indeterminate intervals, which are even more irresolute. With this technique, one can always end up where one will and finish and restart through whichever door one prefers without contortions, and our large world will have more nuance. So that's Debussy expressing his ideas about these things. You mentioned the prelude to the afternoon of a fawn, one of his most famous works uh, written in 1894. Very striking example of this, uh, the, as you were saying, the very famous flute solo at the beginning. What key are we even in? It's this chromatic line, very sort of snaky and ambiguous, but it's also very, uh, it, it really draws you in in a way that's, uh, like you were saying, it's as, he's asking us a question. He's not telling us what he's doing, he's kind of making us curious about it. This is a very, very much in the symbolist frame of mind, valuing the mysterious, that which isn't readily apparent on the surface. Uh, of course, uh, the work, the musical work, The Prelude to the Afternoon of a Fawn, is a musical tribute to the poem by Mallarmé, The Afternoon of a Fawn, published in 1876, and it was something that Debussy was really uh, interested in. Uh, Mallarmé, the author of that poem, was very skeptical about the idea of a musical composition based on his poem, but then he heard Debussy's piece, and he was, uh, he was won over. He, he wrote to Debussy, and he said, I have just come out of the concert deeply moved. The marvel, your illustration of the afternoon of a fawn, which presents no dissonance with my text, but goes much further, really, into nostalgia and into light, with finesse, with sensuality, with richness. It's Mallarmé writing to Debussy about his piece. So clearly there's a, there's a shared set of values about a way of expressing ideas in uh, both uh, a symbolist writer like Mallarmé and a very much symbolist-influenced composer like Debussy. And that's just the first of four points that will bring up to kind of put Debussy in this new light for many who have always just thought Impressionist. Maybe moving now towards more seeing him in this symbolism light. And that first point, the strong preference for suggestion and understatement. So jumping into Debussy's life, because of course it has to start somewhere. He was born in Paris in 1862 and he and he took piano lessons and the family had to locate to Cannes briefly because of this uh, violent uh, revolution in Paris. And it was he was only there for a little bit. But then when he came back to Paris uh, a little bit later in 1872, at the age of 10, it was to be a student at the Paris Conservatory, which is quite remarkable. 10 years old, that's quite young. Not something that really happens much today at all. So he's at the conservatory. He's doing well at piano at first. He's a fantastic pianist. But it seems like maybe he's not applying himself. I mean, he's probably 12 or 13 when they're telling him that. I mean, I don't think I was applying myself too much when I was 12 years old either. <laughs> But he eventually starts to move towards composition, and we can look at one of a really early example of his music from 1879. Uh, he wrote a lot of songs. This one, Madrid, Princess de España. Madrid, Princess de España. 
if you played that for me and I had no idea, you know, kind of out of the blue, I might not. I wouldn't guess that's Debussy. Yeah. It almost, it really, it reminds me of Amy Beach and the song she was writing um, after this. It's it's quite a sound, but already from this um, early times, even it seems like maybe even this was not so much in the style that the conservatory was wanting. Yes. Paris Conservatory at the end of the 19th century is a pretty conservative institution. And uh, Debussy, of course, even at an early age, is already starting to uh, rebel against some of the received wisdom. And uh, that wasn't, uh, wasn't warmly embraced by his professors at the Conservatoire. Now, this is really interesting. Moving on a little bit, he's hired by Nadezhda von Meck for two summers to basically be the resident pianist and teach piano to um, the children. That name probably sounds familiar to a lot of people, Nadezhda von Meck, because she was the big patron of Tchaikovsky, and famously the two never actually, well, really never met. And that episode on Tchaikovsky is number 28, so I just didn't realize Debussy was there with her. And she even sent a piece of his Dance Bohemienne to Tchaikovsky. And Tchaikovsky wrote back, complaining and remarking on its slightness and, and brevity. Debussy didn't end up publishing it, but already it's funny just to see this interaction from uh, Debussy and Tchaikovsky by the way of Nadezhda von Meck. Yes. And interesting there already, uh, as you were saying earlier, this tendency of other composers in this era. Tchaikovsky is a great example of being very declamatory. You you know what the motivic mm. theme is in a Tchaikovsky piece. Yes. You think about the the Fifth Symphony, for example. You da 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 dum da. There it is through the whole piece, very clearly stated. And uh, when he encounters this vaguer style of Debussy, really just in the beginnings of its development, he's already a little skeptical. And for me, it's funny because these are two of my favorite composers, and, and they're so different, but uh, I, I love it so much. Going to 1884, he's about 22 now, and Debussy wins the Prix de Rome, this fantastic big prize, and he does it with his cantata, L'Enfant Prodigy, and I don't speak French, so I'm sure that's quite obvious, but I'll probably <laughs> mispronounce some things. That's the prodigal son, so he wins this prize with a with his cantata, which basically sends him to um, to Rome, he gets to study at this academy, uh, French Academy in Rome, basically a scholarship from this prize in France. And if Paris was already a little conservative, it seems like Rome was even more so. He said he found it quite stifling musically. He was dealing with depression. I imagine also being quite homesick. He's, but um, I think this is like the first time he's really traveled away from home, like this kind of distance. And he ended up only writing four works for the academy in these two years. Interesting, too, that, you know, the Prix de Rome was a pretty prestigious award. Mm -hmm. And uh, you see already the the skepticism Debussy has about these traditional institutions and ideas when he gets this incredible prize that other composers would have gladly given anything to receive. Mm -hmm. And his response is to be rather, um, rather dismayed by the experience of going to Rome and having this uh, incredible opportunity to be exposed to the... Uh, the latest currents in European music, and uh, instead he feels uh, rather, uh, he, he, rather than being energized by that, he seems uh, rather deflated by it. I can just imagine a Debussy walking quite sad down the streets of Rome, you know, with um, coffee and pastry shops and everything, and he's just, <laughs> yeah, he's just sad Debussy, unfortunately. Yeah. Now, one of the works he wrote during this time 
shows us a glimpse of really Debussy to come, his kind of signature sound and style that we heard with the prelude to the afternoon of a fawn in the beginning. And that is this cantata, La Damoiselle L.U., the Blessed Damoiselle. And I think this is also his first orchestral work that would get performed um, years later. This really didn't fit in with the teachers in the Academy at Rome, calling his music bizarre, incomprehensible, and unperformable even. Well, and again, you know, this sense of him being in the, you have this experience of the doldrums, you know, he maybe feels really alienated being surrounded by other musicians and composers who don't understand the direction he's trying to go in. And when we listen to Debussy's music today, his direction and everything, it seems quite obvious. But I imagine back in that time, it really kind of felt unperformable for the first people, at least. There's another work he wrote, Printemp, I think it's called, that I could see that really being unplayable at an academy like that. And it seems like this is also going into a second point of the the symbolism, and that is this freedom of form and a tendency to avoid these traditional structures. Tell us about that. Yeah, you think about other French composers that are active in this period, maybe composers that are older than Debussy. Camille Saint-Saëns leaps to mind, someone who famously despised what Debussy was doing. César Franck was Belgian by birth, but became a French citizen and was very active in French musical circles. They're writing in a very traditional idiom. Saint-Saëns is composing symphonies, he breaks some of the boundaries, but it's it's a very still a very conservative musical milieu compared to what Debussy is doing. Debussy really avoids that. You know, there's a there's a youthful symphony that he started to write. He was maybe eighteen or nineteen. He abandoned it. An old traditional form like sonata form, like we'd find in the first movement of a symphony, is not something that he really finds compelling. It's not a structure that he wants to work in. Debussy once remarked about the symphony, he said, it seems to me that since Beethoven, the proof of the uselessness of the symphony was made. Also with Schumann and Mendelssohn, it is not anything more than a respectful repetition of the same forms already with less power. Must one conclude, despite so many attempts at transformations, that the symphony belongs to the past due to all of its rectangular elegance, its ceremonial order, its philosophical and powdered audience. Have we only replaced its old faded golden frame with the disagreeable brass of modern instruments? That's what Debussy had to say about the symphony. So you you don't really see these traditional forms and structures in Debussy's music, and that's very much in line with the symbolist way of thinking. Many of his most famous works are these wonderful piano miniatures. They express mood, they, they express a kind of lyricism without it always a clear melody. They're often called tone paintings. Rather than being in established forms, you won't see a rondo or a theme and variations or a fugue in these kinds of pieces. At the same time, uh, Debussy could be described not as much as rejecting the past as much as he was looking beyond the more recent past, mm-hmm. not being inspired as much by composers like other French composers before him, like Berlioz or even Rameau or Couperin, really going further into the distant past. And he's looking at composers like Lassus and Josquin, going back to the Renaissance and the early medieval period. You look at a work like uh, the uh, Trois Ballades de François Billon, which he composed in 1910, three settings uh, for voice and piano of poetry of François Villon, a 15th century French poet. And the music evokes the, the late Middle Ages, and yet it's also very much in a modern idiom. <laughs> 
And you contrast that with a composer uh, active at the same period, like uh, Ottorino Respighi, for instance, and we hear works like the uh, the Ancient Airs and Dances. There's another composer looking to the distant past. But whereas Respighi is taking these very old forms and sort of making them new with a different voice, uh, mostly through orchestration, Debussy is really looking more into um, finding a different way to express that aesthetic but also looking to the future. And so his music sounds very modern and very ancient at the, at the same time in a paradoxical way. I wonder if this reflects a disillusionments that you find expressed in the symbolist movement with uh, uh, lots of these uh, failed revolutions in the 19th century, a very materialistic uh, society, uh, set of values emerging, especially in French culture, the Second Empire and uh, the time that followed. In the, in the English-speaking world, we call the late 19th century the Gilded Age. And uh, there's this mistrust for authority and rules in the symbolist value system. And we certainly see this in Debussy's revolutionary musical aesthetic. He once said, I would prefer a thing where in some way the action of my music would be sacrificed to the extended pursuit of the expression of the emotions of the soul. It seems to me that music could become more humane, more alive, that one could devise and refine these methods of expression. And the freedom of form and tendency to avoid traditional structures, the second point you talked about with symbolism, it's also working with Debussy when he calls something a cantata, that Blessed Damoiselle cantata, which is a very old traditional thing, but it would probably be unrecognizable to Johann Sebastian Bach's ears, what Debussy wrote. There's no delineation of here's an aria, here's a recitative, here's the right. chorus, here's the aria, go home. You know, it's it's way more amorphous and really kind of encapsulates that second point. Now it's 1887. He is finishing his time in Rome, probably happily. He's about 25 years old, and he moves back to Paris, and he gets a big influence from Richard Wagner. After seeing the first act of Tristan und Isolde, he really liked what Wagner was doing, and you can hear some of the influence in his music, specifically, actually, this Demoiselle L.U. There's a moment in here that really just kind of screams to me, Wagner. I mean, with the string writing, it sounds like we're playing Rienzi or something. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's obvious the ways in which Wagner and Debussy are so different, but there are similarities. And as you said, you know, he heard Tristan Odizolde. He was very impressed. Famously, a work of Wagner's, which really, which really uh, sort of stretches the boundaries of tonality in ways that are not entirely different from what Debussy was trying to do, even if the... Uh, conspicuous aspects of the aesthetic are quite different. And, uh, you know, Pelias et Melisande, the one opera that he did complete, was a pretty significant event in his compositional career. It really kind of put him on the map in ways that other compositions of his had not previously. It, it really made a big impression. And it's a uh, what we call a literature opera, an opera which simply takes a play a work for the stage and sets it to music. In other words, the libretto wasn't specifically crafted for an opera. He just takes the uh, text of the play, which was a very um, 
Uh, Maurice Maeterlinck uh, is the author of this play, which nobody really reads or sees today, but was very influential, Pelias et Mélisande, a very influential symbolist work uh, in its time. And Debussy setting it to music was also a very important event in the development of that aesthetic. And talk about a tendency to avoid traditional structure. I mean, what would you tell Mozart if he asked, where's the new libretto? And said, oh, there is no libretto. Yeah. Just just do it from this. Here you go. Just I mean, take this play and set it to music. Uh, that's not what anybody really was doing. And it, of course, later on, that became uh, much more of a standard thing. You look at a opera like Wozzeck, for example, Elban Berg, uh, just taking a play and setting it to music became a normal thing uh, later in the 20th century and beyond. But uh, Debussy was really kind of a re- revolutionary in thinking about theater that way and, and writing for the operatic stage in a, in a way that was uh, that was new. And that brings us to our third point here on symbolism, a reliance upon sensual perception more than on cognition and reason. And two of the ways this is expressed in the symbolist aesthetic are in the uses of motion and the uses of silence. We see this in poetry, but we certainly hear this in music and in Debussy especially. Uh, motion and fluidity are uh, especially evident of one of Debussy's most famous piano works is the uh, the uh, first, uh, the arabesque number one, uh, composed in, I think, 1891. And the contrast between Debussy's tone paintings in a work like uh, The Snow is Dancing from Children's Corner and uh, contrast that with the symphonic poems of Franz Liszt, for instance. Yeah. Very, very stark contrast between the very uh, vague suggestiveness of Debussy versus the declamatory, uh, you know, Liszt will depict a battle and you'll hear the trumpets blaring and the drums are rolling. And Debussy is going for a much more suggestive aesthetic. Liszt uh, has that declamatory style, but he also uses this thematic material in a way that's very different from how Debussy does it. Liszt uh, and Wagner taking the idea of a leitmotif, a theme that gets developed, and you hear it in different ways and different voices through a work. You don't really hear that in the same obvious way in Debussy's much more evocative uh, music. Uh, Debussy once remarked, I wanted for music a freedom which it contains perhaps more than any other art, not being restricted to a more or less exact reproduction of nature, but to the mysterious correspondences between nature and the imagination. So this this emphasis on subtlety and on mystery and the sensual perception rather than uh, rational contemplation is uh, very, very, these are very important elements of the symbolist aesthetic and in Debussy's music. I like what you were saying about silence, especially because that is so, so much of music. It's, it's the silence as well. It's what's happening in between notes or phrases and in between notes and phrases or lines in music much earlier than this. Maybe just think of Mozart. You can keep time with the music. If there's a rest all of a sudden where no one's playing, you can generally keep time and know when they're going to come back in, you know, bum bum or something like that. But with this, with Debussy and hearing you describe it, I mean, you really just, the silence is way more amorphous. It can be really stretched, more so than what Chopin would do. And that's also part of, I guess it's kind of realizing a balance of um, sound versus silence and kind of really utilizing it as opposed to just, I don't know, a rhythmic device of silence. Yes. Now, Debussy in the 1890s, he becomes the center of scandals, doesn't he? And this is something that kind of follows him for his um, rest of his life and also affected him professional too. He was, um, yeah, he had a lot of scandals, didn't he? 
Well, again, this is a, a symptomatic of his larger skepticism or rejection of traditional values and mores. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, not to get too much into the weeds of these kinds of things, but you certainly see that in his marriage and the extent to which he did or did not honor his marriage vows, there's a kind of uh, self-indulgence in Debussy's character, which I don't say that to disparage him, although I, you know, certainly don't approve of some of the choices that he made. But uh, regardless of my personal feelings about it, you certainly see in his music, here's someone who feels like he kind of lives by his own rules. And uh, not everyone around him appreciated that. It's interesting to uh, note that uh, Ernest Chausson, another composer uh, who was friends with Debussy, actually broke with Debussy. Uh, over these issues. Uh, Chausson really urged Debussy to live a more uh, respectful and moral life, and uh, they they could not agree on that. And Chausson stopped speaking to Debussy. And then when Chausson died uh, in his mid-40s in a sudden bicycling accident, they had not spoken for some years. And I think Debussy, for the rest of his life, felt a certain regret about how that relationship uh, came apart. But did it cause him to, to re- reevaluate how he was living his life? Well, uh, you know, again, there's that sense that he feels like he has to sort of follow his own path, regardless of how others may disapprove of it. And uh, that led in his music to some really remarkable developments and in his personal life, maybe some choices uh, that were not so constructive. Going into the 1890s past um, these um, issues of Debussy, he writes his only string quartet, and it's actually one of my favorite string quartets. The opening, I think I remember the first time I heard it, it's just so arresting. He's, it's like he has this massive brush, and he is all of a sudden depicting this larger-than-life something before us with this kind of homogenous rhythm and um, harmony that I had not heard in a string quartet before, and just totally free of, of so many of the constraints that other writers or composers had, especially for string quartets when it comes to form. Beautiful ideas, new melodies and stuff, and then they just never come back. Yes. Things come and go, very fleeting, maybe a little more philosophical of, of, of Debussy and that. And when they come back, like the opening theme, it's strikingly different. It's almost like he's we're looking at something like a a sculpture or something or some kind of thing and he's using the music to describe it or something and then when it comes back it's not at the same at all but it's more like the reverse of the object or the inside of the object or something like that it just the string quartet is one of my favorites and i'll put a performance on the show notes page as well because i think everyone needs to hear this it's a marvelous work and, uh, as you were saying, a really a radical departure from the string quartet tradition established by Haydn and developed by Beethoven and Brahms and so forth. It's, it's a, a completely different way of imagining what can be expressed with those four instruments. And I'm wondering, the second movement has so much um, pizzicato in my head. I was thinking, wait, now I'm thinking about Tchaikovsky and Nadezhda von Meck. Was there some kind of influence from there from... Tchaikovsky's Fourth Symphony, which has uh, an entire movement of pizzicato um, strings, isn't it? I don't know. I just kind of thought of that um, the other day when I was re-listening to that quartet. Something Debussy might not have admitted to, but... uh, He he would not admit to that, no. He he may have been more influenced by other composers than he would have confessed to. Yeah, he liked the sound, but not the form. Yes, it's a good way to put it. And we'll get to the next and final point on symbolism right after this. And that brings us to the fourth point here on symbolism, naturalism. Yes, nature is a frequent subject in symbolist poetry, 
uh, symbolist visual art, and certainly in Debussy's music, we talked about uh, footprints in the snow or snowflakes or dancing. You really hear a lot of these uh, nature themes in the music. Again, it's very suggestive. You don't necessarily like hear the raindrops falling. It's mm-hmm. more evoking the mood of what it's like to be going through a, a you know, seeing a rainy day. And uh, Debussy thought a lot about nature and its role in the arts and in human life. He once remarked, I made a religion for myself out of the mysteriousness of nature. An incomparable emotion grasps me in front of a moving sky while contemplating these magnificent and incessantly renewed beauties for long hours. To sense the troubling and sovereign spectacles with which nature invites its ephemeral and trembling beauties. That is what I call praying. So this uh, this uh, this rejection of more traditional ways of uh, traditional modes of spirituality in favor of this naturalistic, this communion with nature is something that's very important in the symbolist movement and very important in Debussy's music. And thinking of, she's not depicting the raindrops plopping on the ground, but um, something else reminds me of, you think of, Vivaldi, because composers have been influenced by nature forever, and in Vivaldi's Four Seasons, depicting things like uh, flying gnats, teeth chattering, cold wind, literally bringing that to life musically. Debussy, as you said, he's doing it differently. He's not saying it's not about the sound of the cold wind hitting your house. It is the feeling you have sitting inside your house, maybe, um, that he's describing more. And maybe you're by a fire, or maybe you have no fire. So maybe you're freezing or you're warm while describing this cold wind. I'm not sure, but... And maybe maybe he wants us to be unsure. Yes. Uh, You know, that's that's one of the places where, you know, calling Debussy an Impressionist composer does make some sense, because the Impressionists were also, in in the painting, uh, the school, the Impressionist school of painting, you're trying to evoke a feeling that you get from looking at a landscape rather than depicting the landscape. So while it's it's we have to be very careful about calling Debussy an Impressionist composer, there are ways in which it does make some sense. Oh, yeah, it was it's definitely something that um, I'm sure he he would argue with people over in a cafe sitting next to him who mentioned something about impressionism. And then he, they would just say, um, okay. And just maybe move their table. Uh, (laughs) Okay. All right. We should move over here. He was Uh, famously difficult to get along with. I can see, but continuing with nature, think of La Mer, the sea, this magnificent work for orchestra that he wrote. The comments that, or the criticism against it after its premiere were quite, intense, saying, I do not hear, I do not see, I do not smell the sea. Another one saying, the audience seemed rather disappointed. They expected the ocean, something big, something colossal, but they were served instead with some agitated water in a saucer. I mean, it's like, for one, it sounds like they're, if this isn't Splash Mountain on Disney. There's no Splash Zone. <laughs> that sounds like that's what they were expecting, but yes. WC does something totally different. How much of it do you think is perhaps... The scandal aspect. Do you think that the scandals affected these critics in any way? I think so. And I wonder the extent to which Debussy was the kind of person who, to some extent, invited that. Mm-hmm. I keep thinking about, you know, Shaw Baudelaire, as I mentioned earlier, is considered the father or a father of the symbolist movement. Les Fleurs de Mal, the, the Flowers of Evil, was a poetry collection that he published, which was sort of the almost the manifesto of 
the symbolist movement. And when it was first published, several of the poems had to be left out of the first edition because the censors wouldn't allow them to be printed. So there was this idea of breaking the rules and saying things that shouldn't be said in public. And I think that that's this sort of this rebellious uh, attitude that you find among these symbolist writers, and you certainly find that in Debussy's music. So he writes a piece called La Mer, and of course, the, you know, the audience, not surprisingly, is going to expect this, uh, this you know, grand sea voyage with the roaring waves and so forth, and he, he gives them something that's quite different from the, what they would expect in a way that's almost like in your face. Well, I'll show you what, what I can do with this. Today, of course, it's regarded as a masterpiece. Oh, yeah. We can really understand in a way that his first hearers maybe had trouble understanding what he's trying to say and what he's not trying to say and how different that is. Like you said, Vivaldi depicts the, the flying bugs buzzing in the summertime or the waves, Tempesta di Mare, you know, you hear the waves roaring. And that's wonderful. And Debussy is doing something quite different that's, I think, deliberately uh, trying to agitate and get us to think about the ways in which we've thought about reality prior to that time and uh, to challenge us to think about it in a new way. I want to read a, a little bit of a critique that happened after the American premiere, and I read it specifically for one word. Um, they said, Last night's concert began with a lot of impressionistic daubs of color smeared higgledy-piggledy on a tonal palette with never a thought of form or purpose except to create new combination of sounds. One, sounds like Debussy succeeded with that last sentence there, never thought of the form or the purpose, just creating new sounds, but higgledy-piggledy. I mean, <laughs> if you can use, I mean, that that critic was waiting for, to use that word in a review, higgledy-piggledy. <laughs> it's a very sophisticated musicological term. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, you can almost see Debussy sitting in his armchair in his living room reading this newspaper review with these words and saying, well, duh. Like, yes, thank you. I, that's what I was trying to do. Yeah. Of course, I was trying to be subtle and, and discard traditional forms. Like, that's what I'm about. And, you know, you can say, I don't like that, but don't be surprised that I'm doing the thing that I've been doing my whole life. We can't leave out one of his most popular works, of course, Claire de Lune, which was published in 1905 as, the, as part of the Sweet Bergamasque uh, collection of piano works. He started writing this, I think, much earlier. And with all of the things that we've talked about now, in terms of symbolism, just to go over real quick, a strong preference for suggestion and understatement. We also have freedom of form and a tendency to avoid traditional structures and a reliance upon sensual perception and naturalism. I want us to think about all of those things because in a few minutes at the end of the episode, we're going to hear a full recording of that piece, Claire de Lune, and I think we can listen to it and hopefully experience it in a whole new way after hearing all those points. But another one that just just grabbed everyone almost immediately, and there's almost there's like an unlimited amount of arrangements. I've I'm pretty sure I've played the violin and a piano arrangement of um, of this one. I mean, there's there's so many in almost any combination you can think of arrangements of Claire de Lune. And it's one of those works that be, it, because it's so evocative and and yet it has this sort of this deceptive simplicity, it lends itself to those different ways of interpreting it and different or instrumental combinations and so forth are really going to be uh, effective because of the way it's written. Now, Debussy saw his popularity increase overseas after a 1909 performance in London of his Nocturnes 
for orchestra, the prelude to the afternoon of a fawn, and the following year that those same works performed by the New York Philharmonic and Gustav Mahler with, I think, much better reviews. It really seemed like he was starting to come into some recognition or fame now into his 40s, but it's also a time, unfortunately, where he's diagnosed with colorectal cancer, which would end up taking his life nine years uh, later. Also incredible that, I didn't know this, he had one of the, I think, first, what we would call like a modern colostomy surgery in 1915. Yes. 19, I, I can't imagine. Which which apparently brought him some relief, but, uh, yeah. you know, this is a, a new procedure and... Uh, it, it may have it may have extended his life a little bit, uh, mm-hmm. probably with a lot of suffering. Yes. And while dealing with this and then the renewed anxiety of now World War One, he wrote a work for two pianos called Blanc et Noir. And this one, uh, this one is just fantastic. It seems to be a little bit more forward looking. And it reminds me of, you know, other works that composers have left kind of not for the people listening at the time, but for the future to be better appreciated. Sansons really didn't like this one, did he? No, uh, he was nothing if not consistent in his disdain for what Debussy was trying to do. Another great work from his later years would be his cello sonata. It's actually one of my favorite. It's so full of character, it's memorable. And this was actually supposed to be a larger set of sonatas for various instruments. I think six in total, but he would die March 25th, 1918, after only completing uh, three of them. So we're going to put links or videos to performances of Debussy's music on the show notes page at classicalbreakdown.org. As we know, he did not write hundreds and hundreds of works like someone like Mozart, but his output was quite varied and there's just so much to discover. Now, do you have anything else for Cloud Debussy, Evan? I want to give Debussy himself the last word. He once said, Wagner declares himself for the law of harmony. I am for freedom. Freedom by nature is free. All the sounds which make themselves heard around you can be rendered. One can musically represent everything a fine ear perceives in the rhythm of the surrounding world. Some people have as their priority to conform to rules. I want only to render that which I can hear. That's what Debussy had to say, and that's his story, and I think we should stick to it. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. So before we get to the music, of course, I want to let you know you can send us an email if you have any questions or episode ideas. You can send that to classicalbreakdown at weta.org. Of course, subscribe, and if you enjoyed this episode, leave a review and tell a friend. Okay, so as promised, here is a recording of Debussy's Claire de Lune, and perhaps now we can listen and start to think about his music in a different way through these four points of symbolism that we talked about. <laughs> 